0: As I indicated a few weeks ago, and Austin, boy, he's paying attention. He let me know this morning, how are you going to continue those lessons? And yes, uh, lessons that involve the grand theme of what God did through us through His Son and how that works itself out through our life through major things. And this morning, it's going to be baptism. And we're going to look at the subject of baptism for the next three weeks as we look at the theme of baptism and new birth. We've looked at the the big picture of new birth itself, and how that we have been brought from death to life, and that Jesus taught we must be born again, that was emphasized again by Peter, and we're going to see that birthing process, if you will, a little bit closer. Um, Go ahead and bring that up, Jay, if you would. We're going to look at living the basics, thank you, Jay, living the basics, power, and the future of biblical baptism. Baptism is not just something that happened at one point in our past, or may happen sometime in our life, and then we just go on to other things from that. Everything we live out in our life points back to what happened when we were baptized. because so much happened, and so much changed. And the notes that you have this morning are simply the notes for this first lesson. Thank you, Audrey, for passing this out for me. Jesus said in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He went on to explain that one must be born of the water and of the Spirit. And we find in continuing New Testament teaching that being born of water involves that act of baptism. And then the Spirit of God comes into our life at that point of our baptism when we are saved. We're going to look closer at that by looking at one scene of a person being baptized. Go ahead and turn to John, uh, not not John, but Acts chapter 8. We'll spend almost all of our time this morning in that one place. Acts chapter 8. Let's first talk about the importance of this scene that we're going to see. First of all, it records the conversion of one person. It records one person being born again. And it's the first recorded scene of one person being born again. Um, In Acts chapter 2, we find that 3,000, in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, 3,000 were baptized. On the first day, the gospel message was preached. Uh, Later on in chapter 4, verse 4 of Acts, we find that uh, 2,000 more were added. So there were 5,000 converted, baptized people early on in the history of Christianity. But we have not yet looked in the book of Acts at one person experiencing conversion, but we will this morning. Uh, It records the conversion also of someone significant, uh, someone who was already religious, Uh, someone who was of a high position. He was a treasurer in uh, the court of an Ethiopian queen. Uh, He was someone that was familiar with the Old Testament text. In fact, he was reading those texts when uh, Philip, the evangelist, met up with him. So his conversion is very significant. He was significant, not because he was a celebrity, but he's someone who is looking closely already at the things of God and will see that he needed to take it one step further and he was the one that kind of led the way in the process as we'll see and then also in the scene we find that in, it provides important details about conversion itself especially what takes place at baptism so we'll pick up in verse 26 in just a moment first of all the setting. Uh, We find the beginning of the Christian faith in chapter 2, when uh, 3,000 people are baptized. Chapter 4, there's 5,000 the church has grown to. But then we find in chapter 7 of Acts, this first church is being persecuted. It's being persecuted. The Jewish leadership is trying to clamp down on this movement, uh, just as they tried to clamp down upon Jesus. And they are beginning to persecute the first Christians. And the first Christians, instead of, like, harboring themselves underground, they spread out. They spread out. In fact, it says in verse 1 of chapter 8, "...on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged out both men and women and put them in prison." So here we find persecution on a whole scale level is taking place. The apostles stay right there in Jerusalem. But these early Christians will spread out, not to hide, but to teach in other places because it's no longer safe for them to stay there in Jerusalem. And one of those individuals is a man by the name of Philip. In Acts chapter six, he was one of the early church that was chosen uh, to help out some of the widows that were being neglected at the time. So he was uh, a very faithful Christian at the time, and he goes out to teach. And what we'll see here in chapter eight, verse 26 is the angel of the Lord will speak directly to him. I want you to go to this place, because here God has something in mind. that is, he will run into a person who we simply know is the Ethiopian eunuch. I want to begin reading verse 26. I just want you to let the text soak in. Uh, We'll read verse 26 through verse 39. And then we're going to look at eight important features, just briefly each one. Eight important features about what we're seeing here in the conversion of one person that will carry on to our knowledge today. Verse 26 beginning. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Verse 27, so he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, or your versions might say Candace, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to do what? Worship. We'll pick up on that in a few moments. And on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent, he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Verse 34. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about who? The good news about Jesus. Exactly, Ricardo. Verse 36 As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way, what? Rejoicing. Rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared to Zotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Okay, let's break this text down. First of all, in uh, verse 26, it says that The angel of the Lord said to Philip, that's Philip the evangelist. There's two Philips in the New Testament. One's an apostle. He is one of the twelve that stayed behind there in Jerusalem. But Philip was one of those faithful men of the early church that was in Acts 6, who was helping some of the widows, he goes out to teach. But the Lord directly speaks to him, I want you to go to this place. He says, go to the road, to the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So if you know your area of Israel or Palestine, as it's also called by some, you'll know that Gaza area is south of Jerusalem. Uh, Many of the Palestinians will live there in the area of Gaza. That's an occupied area, a very difficult, challenging area to live in right now. But that's exactly where the angel told uh, Philip to go. And verse 27 says, uh, he started out, he went on his way to meet, and then Luke records a lot of detail about this gentleman. It's a little difficult for us to kind of appreciate all the detail, but I think it's significant if we take just a moment with us. First of all, he was an Ethiopian eunuch, so he was from another continent. He was from the continent of Africa. He was somebody who had been dedicated, probably not by his own choice, He'd been castrated as a male so that he would be secure in the presence of the queen of the Ethiopians. But he was also in charge of all of her treasury. So he is a man who is outside of Jewish heritage, but apparently had been converted at some point to Judaism because he was on his way to Jerusalem to worship, where he'd been there to worship. So he had a connection to the God of Israel, to Uh, The one true and living God, though he lived outside of Israel. A man of prominence, a thinker, uh, someone who was very significant to have the gospel preached to him. He's simply uh, riding along in his chariot. It says he had gone, in verse 27, to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home, he was not listening to the radio. Again, they didn't have that 2,000 years ago, but uh, he was not listening to the radio He was reading from a scroll of Isaiah, which is significant. Uh, Books were not invented yet. Uh, People had scrolls, but not everyone had access to these scrolls. But the fact that he had one of the uh, ancient book of Isaiah of the Old Testament is very significant. And he's there reading it in this probably very uncomfortable environment of a chariot rocking back and forth, traveling down the road, hot, arid climate. He's reading from Isaiah, and he's trying to understand what it means. And he's reading from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, which is called the Suffering Servant Text. It's a prophetic text speaking about Jesus Christ. And we know that in hindsight because we have our Bibles and there's many references to this. But he's not sure who's being spoken about it. Is the prophet talking about himself? That is, is Isaiah talking about his own suffering? Or is he talking about someone else? Uh, So he's struggling with that. Verse 30, Philip runs up to the chariot He hears the man reading Isaiah, he says, do you understand what you're reading? Philip's simply looking for an opportunity to engage him in what we would call a Bible study. And the Ethiopian man is very open to that. He says, hey, how can I understand it unless someone helps me? Which is a very good practical point. Not everything in Scripture is immediately understandable. And there's a lot of things that need a little extra work, or if someone could explain what some of these things are, it's very helpful. And the fact that he is starting at that position, that is a position for humility. Hey, I'm not sure if I can understand this unless someone helps me, implying that, hey, could you come up and help me? Uh, If you're asking me what I'm reading, do I understand it? He must be someone that could help. Uh, So it says in verse 31, he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Verse 32 through 33 records that very part of Isaiah 53. Then verse 34, Philip asked, I'm sorry, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please. Who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Verse 35, Philip starts at that very place and teaches him about Jesus. So I believe the connection would be that he said, hey, this is Jesus being spoken about. Jesus' own death, crucifixion, that he's that suffering one whose life is taken from the earth at the very end of verse 33. And then apparently Philip goes on to talk to him more about who Jesus is and what he did. And in that very setting of simply traveling on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, the Ethiopian man learns enough to come to the point where he himself asks about being baptized. In fact, he says, Luke records he came to some water. And he says, look, here's water. Does anyone keep me from being, or does anything keep me from being baptized? And this says they both went down into the water, came back out, and... Then suddenly Philip was taken away, but the Ethiopian man went on his way rejoicing. Let's talk now about what we can learn about baptism and its significance simply from this text. There's eight things we'll look at quickly. First of all, baptism is the final stage of conversion. The man has already heard about Jesus Christ. He believes in the one and true living God. Being a devout man, he would understand the nature of repentance and always turning your life in action towards God. Uh, He's confessing his belief in Christ, and he understands there's one thing left to do now. It's to be baptized. And baptism is always presented in the New Testament as the final stage of someone's conversion process. Uh, No one is baptized prematurely. You'll find someone just being baptized prematurely when they don't even know what it means or what its significance is. They are taught about Jesus. They're taught about the importance of a change of life and confessing Jesus as Lord. And then they are baptized. Once their faith is in place, they are ready to be baptized. Uh, Baptism is never an act where someone just experiences it apart from their knowledge and willing agreement to it. It's always the end of a process and a very powerful end. Where someone, as we'll look at next week, comes to the place where God has, does his work. Secondly, it's always a conscious choice. The Ethiopian man, in fact, was leading in verse 36 and 37. He's the one that said, Look, here is water. What can stand or what stands in the way of me being baptized? He was convinced of it. He didn't have to be talked into being baptized. Even as strong as his faith in the one true and living God was already. He didn't say, well, maybe that's later for me. I think I'm already okay with God. I feel comfortable where I'm at. He didn't say anything like that. Philip did not have to tell him, hey, remember I said earlier he had to be baptized. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't like he was forget- He just said, hey, I know where I'm at. I know what I need to do. Does anything keep me from being baptized? He's making a very conscious choice. And anytime we see someone being baptized in the New Testament they're always someone of age of full mental ability to understand what's taking place. We don't find mentally incompetent people being baptized just for the sake of being baptized. We don't find infants or small children being baptized that don't fully understand what's happening and sense their need of it. And this one scene kind of provides for us, like in one picture, what The scope of biblical teaching tells us about baptism, and that's why this scene is so important. He's making a conscious choice. If we look back to verse 12 of chapter 8, it says both men and women were being baptized. The apostles or other teachers were not going around trying to round up small children to get them baptized, it wasn't just an act of dedicating yourself to the Lord. If something was done of a profound act of faith and need, that you had sins needing forgiveness, and you needed a brand new life. Acts chapter 8, verse 13 says people both believed and were baptized. They weren't just baptized. So there's a conscious act always associated with this decision, and we see that lived out with the Ethiopian man. Also, it's a passive role. This is important. Um, Verse 36 again, As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then it says, Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Notice the text does not say, Philip saw water and he said, hey, just a minute, I'm going to go down and baptize myself. Instead he says, does anything keep me from being baptized? And it says both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and there Philip baptized him. The way that we're baptized is significant to what's happening in baptism. You don't just baptize yourself (laughs) because it's not an action where you're just kind of taking the reins of your life and doing this to yourself. It's inherently a submissive act in that someone else baptizes you. And think about the position of baptism. If you've seen someone baptized, if you've seen someone live being baptized or you've seen pictures of it, if it's a biblical baptism, someone essentially is putting their... Entire body in the arms of another. And that other person is lowering them down into the water and then bringing them back out. The person being baptized is physically simply submitting to something, which is symbolic of them giving their lives to God. It's not like they're accomplishing someone or something. It's kind of like having surgery done. Let's say you need to have surgery. Yes, you're bringing yourself to the hospital or someone drives you there. Yes, you'll put on a gown and, and you'll follow the instructions, maybe get on the gurney and things like that. I remember when I had carpal tunnel surgery a few years ago and put the cap on and they put special mittens on your feet. And you don't know that, but basically I was submitting to the surgery. I remember them wheeling me in there. And then within about 10 seconds, I was out and I woke up. Something was done to me. I didn't tell the doctor or nursing staff, hey, let me, let me have some of those tools. Let me work on opening myself up here a little bit. Um, and let me administer the the sedatives myself, I didn't think of such a thing. I was giving myself to them, but I knew what I was doing. And that's exactly what baptism is. We're giving ourselves to the great physician, which is Jesus. He does the work. We simply have the presence of mind and the spiritual sense of what we need to put ourselves in the right place. But that's, backed up by the idea that someone else baptizes us, indicating that we're not accomplishing something. We're not doing self-surgery on our life. We're not self-medicating. We're not fixing ourselves. Someone else is fixing us. We're just going to that person. So it's a passive role in nature. We're baptized by someone else. It involves, and I use this word, submersion. Usually the word is immersion. Either one is grammatically correct, and from a vocabulary standpoint, correct. But sometimes immersion is taken on a a religious context, or sometimes it's used in schools about a language immersion program. And the word is kind of lost, I think, the biblical meaning. But the idea of submersion is definitely valid. Even though submersion a lot of times talks about something staying underwater for a long time, like a submarine being submerged. There's also the idea, though, of something going under the water completely. It says here that in verse 38, then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. Then Luke records verse 39, when they came up out of the water, when Jesus himself was baptized, not for the forgiveness of sins, but as he says, to fulfill all righteousness in Matthew 3, the same type of language is used. John the Baptist took him down into the water and brought him back out. We never see sprinkling taking place where drops of water are dropped on someone's head. We never see water being poured on someone. The very nature of baptism is a submersion into water and then a complete bringing back out. We'll look next week at why that's so important, but just a little preview. Paul describes baptism in Romans 6 as a burial. It's a burial. You're baptized into the death of Jesus but then you come back out alive. So the way that you're being baptized is very important to what God is doing. So any minimizing or saying, well, I don't need to do all that, I don't need to be completely wet, or I'm just going to do this, or my church does that, really is missing the entire point of what the Bible says. And that's why it's so important to go back to the Bible to understand baptism, not go look at what a church is doing, or what that church is doing, what something's done in history, or at some development. But simply see, how were people baptized in the New Testament? Philip took the unit into the water, and then they came up out of the water, implying submersion into water. And that's the very way Jesus was baptized. And if that's the way Jesus was baptized, that's the way baptism should be. And the biblical teaching in other places reflects the same nature of the act of submersion. Let's look at four more basics of baptism. Also, we find in this text that no special person or places needed to assist. Uh, Verse 38, uh, they were out in the desert. And the Ethiopian man simply said, here's water, uh, sufficient water. By the way, if it was sprinkling or pouring, if they were traveling through the desert, do you think they would have had water already and they could have just poured it on him or sprinkled it? They waited till they came to a body of water, implying they understood in the Ethiopian Man understood especially that he needed to be submerged into water. So they found some type of oasis, some body of water. He could go completely down into it and then back out again. But it was in a desert. The Ethiopian man didn't say, well, wait till I get back to the church building uh, or let me go to the special religious place to be baptized. He just, the moment they found sufficient water, was baptized. Implying that there's nothing special or magical about being baptized in a certain place even though many church buildings will have what's called a baptistry and in the main sanctuary where new north is meeting behind where the preacher stands there is a baptistry and people here have been baptized it's a special pool if you will designed just for baptizing people but people have been baptized in the ocean i remember baptizing people in a pool at someone's home Uh, People have been baptized in the sun. Anywhere where there's enough water to submerge someone and bring them back out is a place that is perfect for baptism. It doesn't have to be in some religious building of some kind. And this scene confirms that. It doesn't require a special religious person. Even though Philip here was described as an evangelist, he went out teaching. He was not one of the apostles They did not call. They didn't get on the phone and say, could you bring Peter down here to baptize the Ethiopian? Philip did it right there. You don't need to have someone that's of the cloth or someone like that because they don't make it any better. (laughs) Uh, They don't seal the deal in any way. Basically, you need someone to facilitate When you're baptized, someone, you taking yourself down into the water and back out. I chose this picture deliberately. That is of a woman baptizing another woman. Uh, Usually you always see a man baptizing someone, which is fine, but a woman could baptize someone. Uh, All we find really biblically is usually the person baptizing someone is someone of faith that is part of the process of that person being converted to Jesus Christ. But their gender doesn't matter. They don't have to be a a minister or a pastor sometimes, just someone who's basically taught you and been involved in the process and understands the power of what's happening uh, to you. So no special person or place is needed to assist. Also, there's no advanced knowledge required. Verse 35 says, Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news, good news means the gospel, about Jesus. I'm sure Philip did not shortchange him and say, well, I don't have time to tell you everything you need to know. Let's just get you baptized. I doubt that that happened. But we also could, I think, reasonably conclude the Ethiopian man learned all he needed to know to be baptized. And when he came across sufficient water, he asked, does anything stand in the way of me being baptized? They were still on the road down to Gaza. Uh, Philip did not tell him, well, I need to sign you up for 12 more uh, online classes uh, where you need to spend an hour and a half with each one learning everything about the faith, and then we'll meet on the third week uh, on Tuesday and have you baptized. There's no requirement biblically that a person have a certain advanced level of knowledge. Again, it's a conscious decision. Someone has to know that they need their sins forgiven, They have to know that Jesus is the one doing the work in their life. We'll see in just a minute. It's an act of faith. So there's some fundamentals there that someone needs to know. Just like when I went into surgery for my wrist, I I learned about (laughs) what they were going to do. I was not the surgeon, but I learned about what they were going to do. They took time to explain to me. But the surgeon never said, Okay, Mr. Mulligan, we're going to have five sessions to explain what we're going to do in 30 minutes to your wrist. I knew fundamentally what was going to take place, enough to submit to and say, okay, I feel comfortable with this, let's get it done. And that appears to be the same nature of baptism. You need to know enough. And you don't, as someone teaching someone, you don't rush someone into it, but you also don't prolong it where, okay, well, let's just wait till you know all the books of the Bible and you get everything down and get your life all straightened out, and then we'll baptize you. The person does need to repent. They need to make a conscious decision to change. They confess Christ as Lord before they're baptized. They believe with all their heart that Jesus is the Son of God. But there's no advanced knowledge required. And that's shown here in this scene. In that same setting, he is baptized. Some may take longer than others. There's always that situation. And then there's some that can be baptized quite quickly because they're already ready. And that kind of seems to be where he's at. He just needed to know more what to do. He was already going to Jerusalem to worship. He was wanting to study. He's reading Isaiah 53. Some people are really close, and you find in the New Testament some people are being baptized the very hour of the night they were taught. But then some will take a long time because they have to wrestle with a lot of things. But usually, when the people that have taken a while, when they are baptized, it sticks because it's been a decision they've really wrestled with. Here we just have someone that's kind of already wrestled with the bigger things of faith. They just need to know what they need to do themselves. So no advanced knowledge is required. Also, it's an act of faith. Depending on your Bible version, verse 37 is either right there in the text or it's down below. We have so many copies of the original manuscripts. There's a debate over which are the best. And some think, well, verse 37 maybe is not in there. Others think, no, for sure it's in there. And because the debate is so healthy, every version has it in there. It's just a matter of where. My version has verse 37 uh, saying at the bottom, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the eunuch answers, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Some versions have it right there underneath verse 36. Some have it there at the bottom. There's solid evidence for it. Some just disagree on how powerful that evidence is. But I believe it should be there. In verse 37, simply says that he confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that's an expression that captures the essence of someone saying, I know who Jesus is. That He proved Himself to be the Son of God. He was resurrected. And they're putting their faith and trust in Him. In baptism, you're not putting your faith and trust in what you're doing. You're just doing what I did when I had my hand operated on. You show up at your 4.30 surgery time, you get dressed, you, you, you wheel your, get yourself wheeled in. You don't even wheel yourself in. Someone else wheels you in. But you're just being at the right place at the right time. But someone else is doing the work. And that's what the Ethiopian man understood. He believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Baptism is inherently an act of faith. And if someone does not believe that they're putting their life in Jesus' hands and he's doing the work, they're just getting wet. Baptism has no magical power. There's nothing special about the water. It could be ocean water. It could be fountain water. It's all about a person's faith in what Jesus is doing at that point. And here the Ethiopian man said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We'll talk more about that act of faith in the weeks to come. But finally, it's an act of joy. Baptism is an act of joy. Verse 39, again, it says, When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. This is the heart of baptism. When someone understands what God is doing in their life, They understand where they've been. They understand the cleansing nature of baptism. They might not have a thoroughly in-depth understanding, and they're going to grow the rest of their life understanding baptism. I'm still learning to appreciate things, though. I was baptized relatively young. But you understand enough to know that you've been brought from death to life. And that the old life, the old person of sin, the sins of the past, at that point, they are washed away. Peter taught in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Repent and be baptized for the remission or the forgiveness of your sins. A person needs to know that. Amen. They're not just doing some religious thing, but something is radically changing in their life. And when they sense that and they know where they've been, they know the roads they've traveled, they know things they've done that they rather forget but can't, and they need something done about it, when they understand that Jesus does the work, and it's not them, that they simply came to the right place, they are forever rejoicing. My wrist was in a lot of pain until I had it operated on. Everything hurt, and I'm right-handed, and it was my right hand. But he told me, it, it, this is going to work. <laughs> We've had a lot of success with this procedure. Within a few days, I was back at school, working, typing, and it's been great ever since. I continued to rejoice, but I was so thankful within the first few days. Hey, they, they worked just like he said. And someone needs to be rejoicing when they're baptized. And that's why we join someone when they're, when they're baptized. We, a lot of times we'll applaud because we're sharing their joy. When we're seeing them baptized, we'll sing a song at that time. We hug and congratulate a person. Not because they've done something big and they've earned something, But we are applauding their decision to submit themselves to God. And God has now made this great change in their life. And usually when someone's baptized, they're either just rejoicing with sheer jubilation. Sometimes a person is just in tears. As all the emotions, knowing what just happened, come out. Yeah, it's that. Sometimes it's simply a, a great sense of relief that they've done what God has called them to do. They've submitted. And an Ethiopian man, even though he's already real religious, reading Isaiah while he's traveling down the road, he knew now that he was where God wanted him to be. And he had the forgiveness of sins he probably always longed for. And Philip told him about that. So we see here eight very important, you could call them details or you could call them features, in one scene of one person being converted to Christ and what their experience with baptism and conversion was like. And other texts in the New Testament reinforce these very things that we see here in Acts 8. So this is probably one of the best places to start if you're ever approached by someone about baptism or you're wondering um, about baptism yourself. And a lot of people struggle. It, well, I, I was baptized as a baby, I heard. Or I was baptized as a little child, but I didn't know what was happening and as people re-examine their life, you may, when you're baptized, not have known everything you wish you had known. And probably the Ethiopian man would say that. I learned a lot more later on. But he knew enough to say, here's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? Sometimes we're uncertain. Sometimes we just need to go back to the biblical text Other times we might need to examine, have I been baptized biblically uh, at all? And that's where you have the opportunity to do just like what Philip did with the evangelists. Talk to someone that can walk you through it. Sometimes we just need to be reassured of what we've done, that that was the right thing, because maybe we forgot, time has taken its toll, we just don't remember what we remembered. Uh, Things like that. Other times, maybe it was not a true baptism to start with. The beautiful thing about this life and the beautiful thing about our God that the Ethiopian man could say that's, it's exactly true now that you have the chance in this moment to do the right thing. And that's exactly what he did. He didn't rest on the laurels of what he'd been in the past. When he saw, hey, I need to do this, let's do it. He wanted to be baptized for the forgiveness of his sins and did so the way he was instructed by someone who is specially directed by God to show him? What a beautiful scene. And may this scene be duplicated in our lives and with those that we teach. And may we always go back to the Bible. Because so many people have had other experiences that are shaped more by a church's tradition or by what they've been told or by what they did when they were, or had done to them when they were a baby that they had no idea about. And it was done for reasons that are not biblical. We always have the chance to re-examine and do the right thing now. We're going to sing a song in just a moment to always encourage someone to take big steps like this. If someone needs to be baptized or wants to be truly baptized, uh, that can always happen. The song is designed to encourage, but it's also just a song to encourage us to be faithful to God wherever we're at. If you've already been baptized, but it's always a process of renewal. This song that we sing at the end is designed to renew us, to establish again this great faith that got started in our lives, to carry with us the rest of our lives. However this song works in your life, let it do its work, that Christ might reign in your life, and that you might be brought from death to life, and live that out continuously.